of the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast, episode number 21, pages 593 to 619. I am, as always, your host, Jesse Dram, comedian, podcaster, snarker extraordinaire. My guest this week is Robin Parrish. You may remember her from episode 8, I believe it is. She is the runner at reparishcomics.com, so that's P-A-R-R-I-S-H, R-E-ParishComics.com. She's very, very talented, and I'm very glad that she came on to talk about one of her favorite books. When I first contacted her, she wanted to come back on the show. It actually seemed like she wasn't going to be able to do this episode. However, when she saw exactly what was entailed in the pages, specifically a Mr. Don Gately running into a couple of knuckle heads knuckleheads if we're being cheeky about it in the Ennett parking lot and uh yeah best part of the book so far easily um me and robin actually met in person for the first time she came out to a comedy show of mine comedy is not good right now i don't know if you guys care um if you don't just skip ahead don't skip too far there's a second song this week but, um, yeah, comedy sucks. You work really, really hard, and, uh, you know, you don't get any attention for it. Moreover, you get to watch other people run circles around you. It's really depressing. It's been it's been a bad week for something like that. Um, 
I don't even know if I've gotten into my history on here. I always wanted to be a fucking rock star. And unfortunately, I came of age right around the time that rock and roll was going the way of the Edsel or the Dodo. Not quite the Dodo. Rock and roll's still around. It's just garbage. And it has no effect on our uh, popular culture anymore. So I did bands for years. And I just gave it up and I was getting more into comedy. I still love music. I still love writing songs. I love writing songs for you guys. It's honestly, like, writing songs has never been that difficult for me. I always just need an idea and inspiration. And the fact that I have this book, I always have something to pull from. So it's kind of like, I don't I don't need to feel feelings. Otherwise, every song would be like, <laughs> if I was writing my true feelings, my thought would be, my songs would be, I really love my girlfriend, but every comedian around me is no fucking good, but they get much more opportunities. Is it because I'm white? Is it because I'm white? I'm joking. I'm joking a little bit. But um, yeah, and then I try, I, I li- really am joking. Let me be, let me be clear. It is very, <laughs> uh, it it's, a stereotype for white male comedians to complain they're not getting anything because they're white. But if you don't know that stereotype, it looks like I was just saying, I'm not getting booked because I'm white. Yeah. But then I tried, uh, I gave comedy a try just because music wasn't going anywhere. And uh, it's been comedy ever since. And, you know, it's it's a weird, weird business. And well, it's a weird art just because literally you go from... It's a great art for a manic depressive because you go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. I've been doing this for six years now, and I'll have times where I feel like I'm fucking amazing. I'm the second coming of Louis C.K. without all the coming. And then a week later, I'll be like, I have never known how to do comedy. I don't know how this works. It would be the equivalent would be if you played an instrument. And then just from one week to the next, you just like, I don't remember how to do this anymore. I don't know. Maybe it's my own fault. I have a whole bit I'm working on about how uh, it's a little weird how everybody loves Star Wars. Because when you really analyze it, you're kind of watching the story of a, a terrorist being formed. You know, kid from a sandy locale. Relative, relatives and home get destroyed by imperial forces. He runs off to a cave in the desert and meets a bearded wise man who indoctrinates him into his warrior cult and declares a Jedi Jihad on the Empire. And, of course, there's stuff in there like, you know, 9-11 versus the Death Star. Never forget, you know, an X-Wing blaster couldn't melt steel beams, etc., etc. It's not great, but it's not entirely hack. I at least haven't seen it in stand-up before. But uh, I'm not really getting good results. And meanwhile, I see a lot of my peers who, and this is sour grapes, because when I talk about my peers, I'm talking about my friends too. But if I'm honest, I'm seeing a lot of them putting forth like the, you know, when you're trying to piece something together like that, and then they're on stage, and it's like, you know, you know, OnlyFans, OnlyFans and titties. Yeah, I went on a date. It sucked. I'm gay. And just like, oh, put them on every show for the next several months. Like, well, fuck, I'll be gay. Is that what I need to do? I need to be gay? Sorry, that's... Oh, I'm going to delete all of this. Oh, good. There's scumbags drag racing down my street. I hope you can hear that. Beautiful Port Richmond, Philadelphia. I don't know. Just the struggle 
the struggle of the artist to do anything and make anything. All I have going for me is this podcast. And the podcast is good. I love the downloads. I, I love when you guys reach out to me because it's like, again, I did not know who this podcast was going to be for. Like, mocking. It was never intended to be 100% mocking. But, like, you know, coming at people for something they love. Who the fuck's going to listen to this? Like, somebody who doesn't like Infinite Jest, like... They'll listen to the first episode like, yeah, fuck that guy. And that's it. But no, you guys have become fans. I've become mostly a fan. I've become mostly a fan of you guys. I love when you reach out to me. Uh, it's hilarious that somebody wrote out of the blue. So there's been a problem with my end of the interview audio this whole time. And I couldn't figure it out. But nobody ever complained, so I figured it was fine. Um, I think I just happened to fix that this day. Uh, this episode and then the next week the next day i saw somebody on reddit being like your audio sucks work on it which is you know brusque but at the same time i appreciate that i like directness and i just so happened to think i figured it out so uh we'll see if you guys like the quality this week again we have two songs i really phoned it in on that gately i need a hero but i mean i did get that image in my head it's probably the greatest song ever written jim steinman from meatloaf fame contributed to that one um, but yeah, I couldn't help fantasizing that as I read that awesome, awesome fucking parking lot scene. And then I got upset because it's David Foster Wallace. And that means I'm not going to see Gately for like 300 fucking pages now because everything good you get is going to come with pain. That's only half joking. <laughs> um, but the other one, I had this idea for last week and I just didn't have enough time to pull it off. So, um. We're going to get right into that. Um, I don't have anything coming up, I guess. Follow me online at Jesse Dram, at Mr. Jessica on YouTube. Message me at Diamond Joe Quim on Reddit. Uh, wasn't trying to be a character. I just ran out of uh, dirtiness. I fucked that up. So anyway, here's the song I wrote. And immediately following this, you will hear her again with Robin Parrish as we discuss pages 593 to 619. This song coming up right here is uh, about, in the spirit of Mario in Candenza, really inspired by that last section where he's walking around the fields at uh, Ennett and he hears the sound of Madame Psychosis' voice coming through the billing through the window not realizing madame psychosis herself is on the premises and just being his empathetic tyrannosaurus rex arm self just feeling feeling for the world his heart's beating hard for everybody and he's a good little guy and we love him so in honor of mario and candenza i hope you enjoy it here is feeling everything and nothing at all Oh, and if you guys like uh, professional wrestling for whatever reason, go to SteelRingPost.com and you can read my humorous write-ups of AEW Dynamite every week. Again, that is SteelRingPost.com if any of you somehow love post postmodern literature and sweaty man in their underpants flying around at each other. Back to the song. Insomnia Second 
Episode 21, I Hate Infinite Jazz Podcast. The podcast kept it rolling all night long. Pages 593 to 619. Our guest, returning guest, uh, Robin Parrish. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you for coming back on. Uh, when I reached out to you to try and figure it out, it actually seemed like this week wasn't going to work well in your schedule. But then when you looked at the pages involved, you said, shit, we need to make this work because <laughs> I want to talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. The final scene is like one of my favorites. So It's mine too. I meant to. Okay, I cool. Been, <laughs> if I hadn't been so damn busy these last few days, I was actually going to send you a message like, okay, see why you wanted to talk about this. This might be... Uh, my favorite scene yet in the book. Mm -hmm. But um, before we get back into it, um, just a reminder, everyone out there hasn't heard our first episode, episode eight, I believe it was. You run reparishcomics.com, yes. is that it? Yes. Okay, so yeah, look at reparish.com, uh, check out her comics, follow her. Where would we find you on Instagram and Twitter and all that? Uh, yeah, my handle is Ari Parish Comics on pretty much everything. So, okay. and that's uh, Parish with two R's, obviously P A R R I S H. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, check that out. Um, only other thing I want to talk about before we get into this. So, you and I met in person recently. Yes, that's true. That's right. I had yes, asked you. You were doing a. Um, and then I was promoting mm -hmm. the show. You showed up. So I'm curious. After just because. Part of the thing I've thought of with this podcast is I honestly don't know if anybody who likes this podcast would like my comedy at all because there's really no connections whatsoever. I'm very curious. What was your expectations going into that show and what did you think of uh, what you saw? I don't know how big you are into stand-up comedy overall either. 
I, yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with it. I obviously not doing it, but I also haven't gone to a lot of shows, but I, I had a good time. It was fun. Awesome. Okay. How was I? Was I okay? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I thought you were one of the stronger ones for sure. <laughs> okay. I really need that. I've had a very, I'm actually going to talk about it in the intro, how, uh, just the nature of performing in general, it tends to throw, it tends to make you manic depressive just by like the necessity of it because it's like you're aiming for like that big high feeling but just as much it'll bring I've been in a big comedy funk this week and mm -hmm. it has not been fun but good I'm glad I had a good show glad yeah I could do that. absolutely all right let's dive right back into this so again episode 21 pages 593 to 619 uh if you recall I'm just gonna go down my notes and we can interrupt whenever we have something to discuss okay okay all right we open with the listing of the duties as I live in and it staffer residents need to have mm -hmm. all their responsibilities and chores explained in detail to prevent the inevitable bitching of quote not being told what to do Gately has the responsibility of unlocking the meds locker, the sound of which is perceptibly noticed by many residents, akin to a cat hearing cat food tins being opened. Um, checking on female residents is a particular pain in the ass due to a whole rigmarole of alerting all female residents of a male staffer on the floor. Gately has had the same realization that most janitors find out the supposed idea of women, be women being cleaner is just a myth. Yeah, I remember being like a child and uh, my dad's friend who was a janitor at a school just saying like, little girls are fucking filthy. And that's all I got to say. <laughs> I mean, it's true. You know, I think uh, guys tend to think of like girls locker rooms or girls bathrooms as some sort of pristine thing. Mm -hmm. Not really. Or even worse, thinking of girls' locker rooms as sexy in some kind of variety. Just, yeah, no. <laughs> you know. I think television lies to us on that. Every time you see, like, a woman's bathroom in a TV show or a movie, there's, like, a couch and candles and a fucking violinist yeah, I know, playing. I wish. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> uh, well, I do remember being a little... Oh, God. We can get in that later. Um, okay. Well, da, 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 da. Oh, yeah. Uh, quote, the daily bullshit here is hip deep and not so much annoying as soul sucking. Regardless, Gately's still nervous what will happen when his staff term is up and he gets spit out of the place sober, but with no money or skills, clueless how to live on the outside. Yeah, I like that line a little bit right there just because uh, it is something I've heard from people who've gone to rehab and become you know, been addicts and gone to rehab just how like you clean up and you get given all this responsibility and you have your first real, you know, you're, you're actually living up to your potential for once, but then inevitably you get thrown out to the outside world. Like, okay, you're sober now. Bye. And then there's just nothing you can do. Mm -hmm. Like you have not been prepared for the outside world and the monotony has really just been the monotonous jobs you've been given have just been to keep you busy more or less and not thinking about uh, getting high. <laughs> yeah. A uh, flippant line from Gompert that could be construed as a suicidal threat sets off a chain of events reporting of, uh, of reporting the possibly maybe real threat to a half dozen people who might maybe tell Gately to do something about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I don't do this every week, but it came up a few times. I got to ask you if I missed something here, but our word of the week, because it's been mentioned several times and I didn't write it down at first, is Picayune. Yes. Yes. Sounds vaguely racist. Uh, 
But yeah, so the term would be as in filing organization is picayune. Mm -hmm. Adjective, petty or worthless, comes from the noun picayune, a proper noun of a small coin of little value. So. Interesting. Has Gately mentioned the word picayune before? Like, I, I know in the whole of the book, it's hard to remember that, but. I don't remember. I, I couldn't tell you. It, okay. It's, I think, a word that, that Wallace has used in multiple either books or essays. Um, he has words that he, he favors. I don't know. Okay. So this is where I have a little bit of a complaint just about the book overall. Um, I don't know if you've been listening the last few episodes, but uh, I've come up with a term to describe a little bit of uh, Wallace's writing style, which is a soft third person perspective. Mm. And what I mean by that is, like, we have had moments, uh, this actually first came up when somebody was defending a use of the N-word, I don't remember mm -hmm. who it was, but it was something Gately was saying. Now, so when we're seeing Gately, it's, uh, he's being referred to in the third person by a narrator, clearly omniscient, because we know what he's thinking right. and feeling and all that. However, the words the narrator will use is... Uh, still related to like the sense mm -hmm. of mind of that particular character so yeah, that's absolutely. what we call a soft perspective which is kind of cool and neat and yet it's something that flies out the goddamn window whenever david has a particular word he really really <laughs> likes right. like putting the word picayune in don gately's head and having him say it three or four times in a chapter yeah. I think he goes in and out of, of sort of very sort of conversational ways of describing things that is clearly the way that the characters would phrase something. Mm -hmm. um, just, just sort of, uh, I can't think of an example right off the top of my head, but like clearly, clearly sort of the, a structure of sentence that you'd only really hear someone saying out loud uh, rather than like yeah. traditionally is in a book. So mm -hmm. So, uh, just a little, I, I gotta get my digs in where I can. I feel bad if I don't complain enough during an episode, just because mm -hmm. that is the name of the show, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, we get an adorably dark moment where Gately looks in the fridge and is delighted that some of his meatloaf is missing, which he attributes to a secret admirer and not a dog-murdering bastard named Randy Lenz, which he is not aware mm -hmm. of just yet. Yeah. So... <laughs> that's the end of that little section which is actually a nice setup for what's to come um yeah anything the I fact that, like that chapter and like the one before with the actual dog murdering and then the final chapter of this section's all just like basically within a couple hours of each other like yeah i do i do like the um for how much wallace plays around with the chronological order it mm -hmm. is much more satisfying, I find, when things are being condensed. Like, we're seeing Lens and Green and their nonsense going on, and the next thing we see is Gately more or less happening at the same time, and then we're going to see them come together in a minute for all sorts of shenanigans. It'll be mm -hmm. fun. Um, all right. So, we have Oren who is uh, just finishing up with the hand model. This is page 597. Yes. Pardon me. Oren experiences a sensation of losing hope at the end of sex. 
he cannot receive pleasure, only give, which gives the false notion that he's a great lover. This breeds his contempt for his subjects, but he can't show it because the subject's pleasure has become his food. He loves their anxiety and vulnerability after sex, and he loves being caring and gentle to them to assuage their fear of the significant other finding out. Mm -hmm. While he's having these thoughts, God, Oren is just, uh, I keep trying to think if I've ever met somebody like Oren, because it's like, I'm not entirely sure whether to to test him or feel bad for him, Mm -hmm. because he seems a little scrambled. I don't know, what take do you take on him? He sucks. I think there's a little <laughs> bit of Oren in, in all of us, but yeah. he sucks real bad. Um, so he, he's really like kind of the, the prototype for the, um, I don't know if you've read uh, brief interviews with Hideous Men. Uh, it's sort of like a book, book full of Orens a little bit. Oh, yeah. Or at least some of the stories. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so a lot of this kind of gets rehashed in, in that other book, the sort of like, inherent selfishness of wanting to be the person who gives the other person pleasure makes them feel good because it influences the way that they think of you like stuff like that sort of that whole like really complex uh emotion surrounding what 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 it means to be like a good partner right and the fact that it's well he's also getting off on the trickery to a certain extent like he's getting off on their perspective of him but the end now he's lying to them it's not like oh right you know i don't have to worry about losing my you know husband and children because he's just such a good guy and he's gonna look after me he's like no he's getting he's fucking you specifically because you're going to fear losing your husband and children after the hand and he is just Mm -hmm. delighting in that it kind of the delight in having the finger on the button which might Mm -hmm. not be a good aphorism since we're talking about sex but uh yeah finger on the nuclear button and just like, see, I'm such a good guy, I'm not pressing it. But boy, it feels good just holding it here knowing I can press mm. it. Sure. <laughs> but I also think with him, he's he's not as detached as he thinks he is, which no. is another thing I think a lot of us can relate to as well. Maybe mm. if we've been in situ- like, you know, points during your life when you're like, I'm not, I don't want to be in a relationship. And, and if you're doing like just casually dating people, uh, you might try to convince yourself that you're not as invested uh, as you maybe actually are. So, oh God, I I have that. Uh, I had that when me and my girlfriend started dating, where she'd mention like I really wasn't looking for anything serious. Where I think what was actually happening was I had dated a bunch of people who disappointed me by not taking things serious. So I had to shield myself by saying, mm-hmm. I guess I don't want anything serious either. And then mm-hmm. big old uh, emotional me, like, yeah, I'll love you for all your foibles, wandered into her life. And uh, that changed very quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Ah, someone knocks at the door and the hand model goes white and hides beneath the blankets. Oren looks out the peephole and sees nothing. He opens and looks down to see a man in a wheelchair staring straight at him, no effort to look into the room. Oren felt left down, but almost touched by the man. The wheelchair man holds a clipboard out to Oren, saying only the word, survey. Oren is overwhelmed with how much pleasure he must be giving the wheelchair man, who has surely invented this survey as a ruse to get Oren's autograph and look at his powerful legs up close. Mm-hmm. Oh, Oren. Uh, the wheelchair man asks Oren his age, if he's a U.S. citizen, 
He asked several times what Oren has to miss, which confuses him. After giving a few different answers, Oren says he misses old broadcast TV, the dumb things he hated but secretly enjoyed and now missed. He missed sneering at something he loved. Non-challenging dramas, so simple you could predict the dialogue. Pardon me. The wheelchair man responds, emotions of mastery and control and pleasure. He catches a brief moment of the wheelchair man looking past Oren into the room. Oren notes that the hand model seems to be very quiet behind him and perhaps that they should wrap this up. So again, we see uh, Oren meeting another one of the wheelchair people who he is convinced are his secret admirers who must love a punter so much given that they have no legs. Uh, of course, we know by a Marath and Steeply. We're still not entirely sure what's happening there. I, mean, I think it gets, I read ahead a little bit, and I think it gets unveiled soon uh, just how much Steeply is digging into Oren's past for the benefit of the wheelchair assassins. But yeah, I don't know. Any, any thoughts on that? Um, honestly, the, the thing that I kind of wanted to, to talk about in this section was um, the whole missing TV thing. I guess like okay. that, that that's sort of interesting to me as someone who's never had a cable subscription myself like my parents did when I was a kid but I've always ever had just streaming or you know watching things online um sort of not not exactly like the system in the book but similar where it is exclusively just you choosing what to to watch um and it being within your control to some degree I'm, I'm sure you could just let the algorithm choose what thing to watch next maybe if you wanted but mm. so so this is um something i don't relate to at all <laughs> I, I i guess i get the appeal but uh, i like i i think it has a lot to do with how you view and take in your entertainment to begin with like uh okay i'm gonna I, i'm gonna be a little bit of a snob here but uh, as somebody who only takes in like high art and really deep stuff deep television now uh -huh. when, when you when you look at, <laughs> when you look at the stuff that gets big ratings on tv it's actually pretty well known in the television business that like particularly when you see sitcoms the whole point of sitcoms is they are supposed to be dumb background stuff that you can hop in at any point and it's still funny and honestly it kind of works for that they're pretty much making television for people who want television on in the background because ultimately that's what keeps mm -hmm. them tuned in the less you're actually paying attention as long as it's on and you know you can hear the goddamn mcdonald's commercial come on in between that's all they're <laughs> really looking for right um meanwhile i absolutely love the modern streaming invention i mean youtube like youtube was always great but once i got it on a streaming television and like because i never followed like recommended videos before i had like roku or anything like that mm -hmm. but now i it is very infinite jest i have a constant there is a there is computer coding there is a robot somewhere that is only concerned with what does jesse want to see and I yeah. love that little robot because he has figured me out. <laughs> and, uh... Yeah. No, I love that this this book is like his dire prediction about the future of television. I was like, you're not thinking dire enough, David. You didn't I, go far I, enough. No. I mean, well, I, I'm still flabbergasted that like he, out of all the things that were so futuristic about Infinite Jest that he really picked out, I think streaming is like, the, the only thing he got wrong about streaming, the 
only thing is in his universe, it would be like if NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox had started failing due to cable, and then NBC, ABC, and CBS mm-hmm. invented Netflix. So that, that, that's right. the, only, the only thing he got. But kind of like old Netflix, if I'm not mistaken. I, I only really reread this section for, for today. So, um, mm-hmm. but it's, it's sort of a system where you get sent stuff. Yeah, like physical tape. Right. Yeah, it, but like it old Netflix kind of. Right. It's it's you know it's a little column A and column B because it is still it does still have uh, the physical component, yet at the same time like the AI and choosing things for you has already yeah, kind yeah. of been established. Right. And uh, the only other thing I'd add on that is I do th- I I know some people who uh, have had the nostalgia for old advertising. Like I remember I had a roommate who mm. would like. You could find things on YouTube that's literally like somebody will upload a VHS they found in their house, which is just like, you know, like a CBS sitcom in 1987 that they just they just recorded for two hours. So you got like all the commercials in between and the commercials is what he's really in for more than anything else. He says it really, uh, really takes him back to being a kid and like watching. Yeah, no, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. I I find uh, actual ads jarring. I don't have things that play ads um, like Netflix and, and the YouTubes. Mm-hmm. The YouTubes. Um, uh, I have the whatever Google Play thing hooked up to it so that I have YouTube premium. So I don't have ads on there. Um, uh. And whenever I like, there's like probably like the Oscars or something like some some live event that I watch maybe RuPaul's Drag Race finale, something like that, where I have to actually like go to those Russian websites and, and hack into live TV because oh, I like, won't pay for it. You'll, um, go, you'll go that far to avoid advertising? No, 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 not to avoid advertising, to see a live, like a live broadcast. Because ah, okay, okay, I can't okay, do okay. it otherwise. That's right. um, and also because you don't have cable. I got, I got yeah. it. I'm, I'm following you now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and so I can't avoid advertising. Like I see TV advertisements there and it's always super jarring just because I, I never see them anymore. Some of them are really dark sided. I don't. <laughs> yeah, no, I only, I only time I really see them and I haven't seen them during quarantine for reasons that'll be obvious. Uh, when I would stop by my mother's house, because she would watch, still watch like the Hallmark Channel and shit like that, which mm-hmm. again, just to show that this apple fell far from that tree and down a goddamn river and several counties away, because I could not imagine ever watching the goddamn Hallmark yeah. Channel. But, no. Mm, oh well. To progress. We're never going back. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> Okay, so the next chunk we have we have a twenty page chunk, and it's uh, gonna take us all the way to the end of the episode. And you know, so I, good. I might as well just say it right now. One of the because I mentioned it before, I don't remember what the last thing was. It might have been. Uh, pardon me, I should not have drank a soda before I got on here. It might have been Escaton, in that almost all of the action in the book is actually being discussed in the past tense. Like it's never anything mm-hmm. happening to the characters as we're watching. They're always like, Oh, and then such and such was doing blah, blah, blah anyway. Mm-hmm. But it's only been Eschaton and this scene where there is action happening to, and the, the sudden suck out of the, uh, the milieu that we had been in is really kind of jarring and exhilarating. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I love this section. So, um, 
Curfew is 2300 or 11 p.m. for all Ennett residents, though there's always one or two cutting it close for the thrill of getting kicked out and therefore not their fault. Gately has to catalog them all when they come in and take notes, including two residents with postures and expressions that require him to note a possible in-house relationship, which is a big no-no. Three annoying residents, one of whom Gately did time with, make a point of going out on the porch to smoke every night and only going back in after Gately tells them twice that he has to lock up and they're breaking curfew. Just a whole recovery house full of lifelong rule breakers now getting their fix by minutely inconveniencing and annoying Gately. Gately is just about to lock up when Lenz, who suddenly doesn't have his fake mustache on anymore, oozes through the door and up the steps without a word. At headcount, Gately can't account for the new girl, Amy J, or more worriedly, Bruce Green. Bruce shows up at 11.36, and Gately has to lock the exact time and then make the call whether or not to unlock the door, which he does. Green has never been late before and looks awful currently, with potato white skin and vacant eyes. Gately is disturbed as he gives Green the standard chewing out and restriction punishment for being late, while Green just stares blankly at the floor, not paying attention. Green is so unresponsive that Gately, Gately thinks he needs an immediate urine test, which he hates to do because Gately kind of likes Green. So, yeah, we're seeing the little things uh, just in case somebody had a, a stretch between this episode and the last. We last saw uh, Lens had just snuck away from Green on their walk home, and Bruce Green had watched from a distance as Lens snuck up to the backyard where inside a Hawaiian-themed party was happening to <laughs> slit a dog's throat, which took the ire of the people inside, a bunch of Canadians in Hawaiian shirts and, uh, you know, floral lays, who mm -hmm. then go out and chase him down the street. And this is the first we're seeing of them since. So we get into, he's very much setting up the circumstances here. Residents owning cars is a special kind of nightmare. Due to Boston's bleeding of its car-owning citizens with nigh-impossible to follow parking laws, Gately and Pat have to lock up absolutely everything in the office at 11.59 and then personally escort anybody with a car outside at midnight to move their car from their Cinderella-style midnight, now-illegal parking spot to the mm -hmm. opposite side of the street's hitherto illegal parking area, magically turned into glass slipper legal parking at the stroke of 12 bells. I had that same setup when I lived in San Francisco, and it was a really? nightmare. Yes. That sounds like a nightmare, honestly. Ugh. Yeah. It's Oof. Literally, the only, the only negative to me about living in a city is just the parking. Because... Yeah. No, I, I get that for sure. Street yeah. parking is... Any any of my friends and me, like uh, who grew up in the suburbs, we had to learn all sorts of parking tricks. Get real good at parallel parking when mm -hmm. you move into the city. Uh, but so. that was the thing. As a suburb boy, I also just did not want to go without a car. That just seemed mm -hmm. so alien to me that I couldn't. Yeah, I didn't like it. Didn't so many. I mean, there's so few American cities that are set up for you to not have a car. Like it's sad, honestly. Yeah. Like. Uh, funny for the way it turned out. So I was living in South Philadelphia before the COVID outbreak. And that's like the easy, for those of you who don't know, it's the, it, it's like an easy chunk of the city. It's directly South of uh, city hall. Pretty much anything you'd want to go to is a bus line right outside your door. And I had moved to Port Richmond, which is still a chunk of the city, but really not as easy to get around. It's hard to get to the subway. 
And I was worried like, ah, shit, I'm going to have to commute to work. I'm going to have to drive from my house to the subway train. And then that was all rendered moot by COVID and working at home and then was rendered further moot when they fucking fired me. So Oof. that's okay. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, that, that company's not making it to the new year anyway. It was in like live ticketing services, which they're. Oh, is, no. Yeah. Believe me, I was lucky that I was employed as long as I was. I knew that was going down. Yeah, I was just actually talking to one of my friends about like concerts that we had, you know, various concerts we'd bought tickets for before this. And it's like a lot of them supposedly will happen at some point in the future, you know. My my girlfriend loves, loves, loves Nine Inch Nails. And oh, nice. it hadn't even been announced yet. But after a few months of COVID, uh, Trent Reznor said like, yeah, we were going to do a tour and we were going to open it with three nights in Philly. Also, it would have been mm-hmm. like literally the weekend of my girlfriend's birthday like so pretty much like didn't even announce it didn't know they were missing like hey just letting you know this awesome thing would have happened and now you're not going to get to so okay bye and she was still like you think they're going to come back right maybe yeah hard to say hard to say go go pray to trent reznor and god that they can make (laughs) coronavirus go yeah okay um The residents make this extra annoying as they tend to be in complete denial that their car will be towed. These these are the types who always rat out people breaking the rules, but constantly make excuses for their own rampant rule breaking. Despite other staffers telling Gately to let newbies get their cars towed to shatter their denial, Don has a deep need to prevent towing if it's at all possible, least of all wanting to avoid the hassle of taking a resident downtown to get the things sorted out. When Don makes the 1159 call, Lenz doesn't answer. Gately goes upstairs and finds Lenz doing handstand push-ups in a bare-ass athletic supporter with noise-canceling headphones, farting with every upthrust very close to Jeffrey Day's face. Like you do, I guess. <laughs> it's so, so- bizarre. <laughs> Okay, I I, I, I guess really, he's on coke, but like he, he, he is on coke, and that need I understand showing that. It's just the farting. All right, I I wrote a little soliloquy here, but this is but I'll never understand what it is with academic overeducated writers. Whenever they're trying to be funny, they go for farts, and I personally believe farts are hilarious, but it does nothing for me on the written page. For a fart mm-hmm. to be funny, it needs to be experienced. It's farts are like dreams. Nobody wants to hear you talk about a fart or a dream. No. But if I could, if I could somehow experience it, maybe I'd get it. I don't know. Yeah, I think the only scenes in in books that I find funny that have sort of like the the farting or the like scatological humor is like mm-hmm. sort of emphasizing whatever reaction to it I guess like right. uh, you can write that in a funny way I think but just you know farting itself I agree with you yeah. it, it just seems lazy to me like okay I need to show that this guy is a jerk and he's on cocaine he's doing handstand push-ups and he's farting in a guy's face with everything like that sounds like that sounds like something a brilliant but still nine years old third grader would come up with. Just- yeah, I, I, yeah, Pynchon tends to do stuff like this too, where where it's sort of the the scat humor kind of thing. He leans into more than I'd like uh, uh, sometimes, like not not all the time, but um, and and it, I guess it's just supposed to 
sort of be juxtaposed with with the rest of the I can't tell I don't know honestly <laughs> I don't know what the what the appeal is for for this type of author maybe Wallace is just imitating Pynchon uh, again <laughs> I still need it is it terrible that I I kind of want to give Pynchon a pass just because no his, don't well no no his his last name sounds so butt related as is I like Pynch <laughs> Like pinching, like you pinch butts, pinching a mm. loaf, a fart can have a pinching sound. I kind of want to give him a pat. It I is not his real name, I don't think. Oh, I'm well, pretty sure that's like a. I take it back. Fuck pinching then. Um. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, he he's he, honestly he's doing it right. No one knows where he lives or what he looks like. That's is, smart. Is, is pinching still alive? That's a good question. So a lot of people recently, I, I sort of found out this this conspiracy theory that people have that he died a while ago and he has left instructions for people to continue writing books under his name, Ooh. like for for like how to do that and uh, you whatever. Obviously, these people have no idea what the exact instructions would be, but I love that idea. Um, yeah, I love the mystery of that. Because, I mean, assuming he's still alive, he's quite old now. Mm-hmm. Well, if he'd I, if in I, his 90s. If I was to go by the lowbrow equivalent, uh, the rock band Kiss has already said that they've already replaced half the members of Kiss and the two ones mm-hmm. that are still there. Like, absolutely, I want us to be replaced. I want Kiss to go on forever, which mm-hmm. ugh, I don't. I, I, have a cousin, <laughs> I have a cousin who's a Kiss super fan. I went to one, one Kiss concert and I think like, okay, this is, I'm fine forever. I need to never listen or do any of this again. But. Yeah, no. I mean, I like I like the idea of it for for an author, like mm-hmm. just because people view it as such this you know this individual like auteur, you know, mm-hmm. this singular genius who who is uh, producing this out of the ether with no help, you know, one person, et cetera, et cetera. Like like that sort of focus when people talk about authors, and I like the idea that maybe it's not, maybe it's like a team of people. Um, <laughs> which I think Thomas Pynchon would find funny. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why I, I almost want to buy into that idea mm-hmm. like pretty badly just because I think it's funny too. See, I, I do love stuff like that, particularly, I, I hadn't thought about it, that is a good idea, the way that people identify with authors on such a singular level, mm-hmm. that there is almost a kind of like a switcheroo, like when you find out like, oh yeah, he didn't really write that. like. I, I see this with music more often than not. Like, oh God, I remember I ruined my mother's best friend's experience of a song. She loved the song Jersey Girl by Bruce Springsteen uh. so much. That's one of her favorite songs. And then I got into Tom Waits and explained like, oh yeah, no, that song Jersey Girl was written by like a really, like w- was written by like a barfly who sings like he has razor blades in his throat. <laughs> and then Bruce Springsteen covered it because Bruce Springsteen's a fucking hack. And it like she was upset. wow very very strong move of you to call bruce springsteen a hack this close to new jersey yes who would have thought the host of the i hate infinite jazz podcast having a strong unpopular opinion mm-hmm. nah I, I i grew up in jersey i'm, I'm allowed to hate bruce springsteen i see <laughs> okay uh Back to the push-up farting. Gately grabs Lenz by the ankles and turns him upright, Lenz saying he'd lost track of time. Gately can tell from the energy and Lenz hyper-fun to the start. 
Hyper run to the stairwell while again repeating that bit about willing his fingertip to grow back that Lens is fucked up on something and needs a urine test immediately. But Lens has held things up enough now that the tow trucks are already prowling outside and the people getting piss tested and getting Lens piss tested will immediately result in towed cars. So Gately pushes it aside, unlocks the door and let everyone out, keeping an eye to make sure Lens doesn't run off so Gately can personally get him kicked out of this place for good. This is further complicated by Gately's need to get someone with a license to move Glenn's car, as Glenn has been laid up with diverticulitis for days. A general sense of mayhem and confusion of Gately needing... Uh, he is putting this together really well, getting the idea of, like, well, he needs mm -hmm. to do this, but he also needs to do this. And it is perfectly setting up the scenario to play out yeah. the way that it does. Um, Green volunteers immediately to move Glenn's car, which makes Don a little agitated as he still hasn't had the decency to get mad at Gately for giving him a piss test yet. It sounds like Daytona outside, as most drug addicts are incapable of starting a car without revving the engine. True fact. Um, Gately is distracted checking on Glenn whether Bruce Green can move the car. He doesn't hear the sound of brakes and raised voices outside until Green appears in the doorway telling Gately, come out. Gately tries to protest only for green to say come now gately gately comes outside and finds two bearded men in hawaiian shirts nearly his size four-fifths a gately as he reckons and yeah wearing hawaiian shirts and as gately describes faggy necklaces so here we are at our scene the two giant men are chasing lens around his car trying to catch him while a third man in a Hawaiian shirt and a floral necklace holds a gun to the other residents to keep them from interfering. Gately mm -hmm. clicks into a different gear, the earned common cool of somebody who's been through life and death showdowns like these in the past. Gately takes multiple split-second notes. The guys are big, but not too bright, as they are chasing Lens, who still has not shut his mouth for one fucking moment, like a cartoon in circles around the Montenegro, as opposed to cornering him running opposite ways. Their beards and faces look foreign. He also notes from the gunman's posture that he most certainly knows the proper way to fire a weapon and has done so many, many times before. The stance of a policeman or a mobster. Don notes the gun itself, a 44 caliber bulldog, has been personally customized by the user to be more deadly. This thing will obliterate anyone unlucky enough to get in a bullet's path. Gately finally hears the accents, making him think of the knock he accidentally killed. Gately walks right into the headlights of the Montenegro, causing Lenz to shout his name and the gunman to set his sights on Don. Lenz runs and hides behind Don, who is almost enjoying this, having had many fantasies in his robbery days of saving someone innocent and being killed in the process. A redemption story. Mm -hmm. The hilarity that that innocent person is a dog is murdering Randy. fucking yeah. Randy Lenz. The only anxiety he feels in this moment is the ridiculous log entry he's going to have to record for the entire incident. The Nux approach Gately, telling him this doesn't concern him, just get out of the way. Gately shrugs in a way, suggesting, sorry, but I have to be here. The thought occurs, if he'd just said protocol be damned and piss-tested lens when he wanted to, they'd all be inside and in bed by now. The sight of one Nux snapping out a blade kicks things into a higher gear and the adrenaline slides Gately into a groove he hasn't been in in a long time. The blade just removes one more option from the table, the option to disengage. Shit is going down, and Gately is just a small part of a bigger thing that can't be controlled. 
Gately tells the Nux he's responsible for the people and the safety of the people in this lot. So yes, he very much does have to be a part of this right now. We'll have to talk this out because Don does not want to fight them. He's wearing his fight expression of ferocious good cheer. The Nux I love him, that. I know. The the smiling during the whole thing is amazing. Yeah, you know what? Let's let's take a moment to talk now because this is before the action is actually gonna start. Mm-hmm. There is so oh, this fell together so quick. And I can feel even writing, you can almost feel like the wave of calm that's gone over Gately. Mm-hmm. He is like depersonalized and just kind of like, you know, grabbing things in the moment where th- this is pretty much a very terrifying scenario, but this is kind of like giving, giving him a hit of a drug he hasn't tasted in yeah. a long while. Like the kind of adrenaline you would get breaking into a house, for example. Right, for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's really, really excellent. Like th- this whole character just for for doing like set not setting up because that's already sort of been set up, but but sort of de- like refining the image of of Gately as a character. It's it, like it's just so good. It's so perfect. Like you you get so much from this chapter just just this fight scene. Well, it's also we've seen so much so much of what we've seen with him is uh his uncertainty and his struggle mm-hmm. and now he he's been lured amid all this uncertainty and struggle he's gone through in sobriety he has now suddenly been yanked into a situation against his will where <laughs> he knows exactly who he is what his purpose is and what he has to do yep let's find out what he has to do the nux <laughs> tell him to get out of the way. They're going to kill this batard who killed Bebe or Pepe or whoever as Lenz shouts insults behind Gately after running behind him and shielding himself. Gately feels an almost sexual capability as he sees the, sees the two knucks both move forward on him ready to pounce, yet way too close to each other. Lenz sets off the momentum, pushing Gately forward, pushing himself off and running away from the pounce. Gately body checks the one knuck into the knife knuck. Knuck one punches Gately in the forehead, which immediately breaks his own hand. Gately grabs him and breaks his arm to boot, and an extra pirouette twist to yank the whole damn arm out of the socket. Again, there's a, there's a mechanical, and he explains it in a sense, but the mechanical way he's going about just demolishing these guys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the knife knuck slashes at Gately's calf from the ground and gets up gracefully. Gately takes him and Rocket kicks the guy in the chin, audibly breaking Gately's big toe in his shoe. The man flies back onto the hood of the Montenegro as the blade clanks and clitters away along the asphalt. Gately notes, and this is what I get in the mechanical aspect, Gately notes outside of choreographed fights, it's almost impossible to fight two guys at once as they'll end up cornering you or overpowering you and kicking you. The only option is to take one out of commission swiftly and brutally to focus on the other. The broken armed man is still perversely holding Lenz's fake mustache after all this. Gately kicks him twice in the head before sidestepping and dropping all his weight onto his knee into the Nux groin. The result, this results in a terrible sound from the guy and a scream from Joel and a cracking sound and a massive punch to Gately's shoulder so hard that it spins him around and immediately turns hot and makes him realize he's been shot his first time ever. 
the phrase shot in sobriety flashes through Don's head. Don sees the gunman set his sights for Don's head for a kill shot, only for Bruce Green to jump behind and catch the knuck in a half Nelson, taking the gun off Gately as it goes off. Nell Gunther gets a running hop and kicks the knuck in the face with his paratrooper's boot heel. This snaps the guy's head back so hard it hits Green and breaks his nose. Green doesn't even let go, let go to hold of his nose as fucking Lens now comes out of nowhere and tackles both the gun knuck and Green holding the gun knuck, all collapsing to the ground. Gately sees the blade knuck moving off the Montenegro, so he punches the man in the kidneys and begins bashing his skull off of the windshield. Ah, just scenes of brutality. I, I kind of love it. This, ugh. Yeah, I think this is, if I had to rank like all the, the fight slash death scenes in this book, this is maybe the second most violent, the first being, I think you've already encountered it at this point, the, the wheelchair guy killing with the broom. I, 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 thought that, I thought the wheelchair guy was too, I thought it was too fantastical. And I actually, I said it jokingly, but I did kind of ruin it. Like, if the guy doesn't have legs, how is he even having the leverage to stick that thing down his throat? Right. Like, I, I, I but just the throat. description of, of it going down and, like, through the dude. Like, the first time I read that, I had to, like, stop reading. Which which is um, not, not to talk about a scene that's not in this section, but I'm gonna. Um, I love that scene so much because that is so freaking disgusting and upsetting mm -hmm. but then the description of the guy's experience as he's actually dying is so beautiful yeah. like just this this super upsetting thing followed by this incredibly beautiful final paragraph like maybe one of my favorite chapters in anything ever See, like, I, i'm still waiting for the end of that chapter to play out because it brought a sudden notion of the afterlife which is not hasn't popped up before that section or since so i'm waiting don't alone. worry <laughs> don't worry <laughs> It'll come okay. back. Okay. Okay. It will um, be discussed more. Okay. Uh, yeah. For me personally, I think, uh, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll admit this. So my, uh, this isn't going to be a sad story. It's just a perspective. Uh, growing up, my dad was a pretty violent man, but here's the thing. Never laid a hand on me. Never hit a woman. One of his significant others. Mm -hmm. My dad liked to fight the way like pit bulls like to fight. Like he, he used to describe to me like, yeah, the way you get at like a teenager, like the way you would go to a party and try to figure out what girl you're going to get with, I would look for like who I was going to fuck up that night. So mm -hmm. I, and him and all his friends who were you know like a bunch of bikers, they were like uber violent guys. So for me, this does there. And again, just the natural way a kid is going to look up to his dad there is something of like competent violence that just does it, it scratches something in me and really makes mm -hmm. me like, ah, dad. Well, I think that's, oh, well, I think that's true for a lot of people, not necessarily the dad part, but, mm -hmm. but the sort of watching someone sort of very, you know, efficiently uh, and cleanly, you know, dispatch people. Mm -hmm. um that's what people people love to see it in movies and stuff like oh, the, the number one scene i think of is the the pistol whipping scene in goodfellas everybody oh, mm -hmm. that it makes me think immediately of that just like he's gonna come over and he's gonna handle this with with brute efficiency mm -hmm. i think of like i don't know if you've ever seen the movie the guest no <laughs> uh there's like a very almost like cartoonish kind of scene like that where where dan stevens character like 
basically beats up a room full of high schoolers. Um, it's a very strange movie. I super recommend it. It's one of my favorites ever. It's called The Guest, by uh, Ad- directed by Adam Wingard. It's incredibly good. Very weird, kind of cartoony and campy, but it's it's super good. Definitely look that up. Oh, and just to put another recommendation out there, uh, also makes me think of a history of violence where pretty much the entire premise of the movie starts on a scene in the very beginning where it's a man being robbed in his diner who then proceeds to like brutally but efficiently murder the two men who are holding him up, which sets this pretty much sets the story in motion because it reveals that like, oh, wow, good old good old Frankie. Did you hear? He destroyed those two mobsters. Like, yeah, Frankie's in the witness protection program and he's been living (laughs) this false double life as, you know, like a nice business owner. Anyway, Mm -hmm. um, the residents encircle Lens and Nuck and start kicking wildly, hopefully catching Lens with a few just for good measure. Joelle climbs down from her balcony shouting Don's name, still stuck holding the toothbrush she she was in the process of using giving Don at least enough pause to check out her beautifully undeformed thigh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lens is rolling around with the unconscious gun knock, hitting him going there, there. <sighs> Gately's smile is described as, as empty as a pumpkin's grin. Oh, that's such a good <laughs> Yeah, it's so good. Um, Gately returns to the broken arm knock and just keeps stomping on his head. <laughs> Joe- Joelle has gotten stuck in a tree trying to climb down, and Erdity is looking up her robe. We don't need to get into it too much, but I just need to mention just how, how fucking distract, how sex is still, still distracting, even in a life or death situation like mm-hmm. this. Like, I have seen, like, street fights between two women where everybody gets distracted when, like, a boob pops out. Like, it just, it, yeah. that part never turns off i have seen people in like fist fights get distracted by like a hot girl or looking up a girl's skirt it's so oh we're such fucking <laughs> animals just killing and humping all of humanity i mean that's true um gately falls onto his ass exhausted as lens and green approach him the way you'd approach a big hurt animal joel is down out of the tree and running still absentmindedly holding the toothbrush Gately lays down and feels the dead cold of his shoulder, surely a portent of extreme pain soon to come. Flesh wound, he says, as Joelle notes up, comes up, noting how massive the blood loss is. She takes off her robe to pad the wound. Lens tells Gately he doesn't know what to say in a thanks. Gately says, you owe me fucking urine, Lens. It's... (laughs) It's noted that Erdity has not lowered his hands from the please don't shoot position during this entire ordeal and is persisting still. I love what they're going to do with Erdity in a second. Uh, mm-hmm. People are calling for an ambulance, which Gately says he doesn't want one due to his fear of going back to prison, etc. He notes Joel is basically straddling him and admires the parts of face he can see. He does his best to ignore the cold and shock and sleep. He tells Lens and Green to get him inside. Nobody call the fucking police until he gets in. At least one of the Canadians is dead. Despite the mayhem, Gately can't stop noticing how good Joelle smells. Again, losing, losing blood, gonna die. Like, I've actually heard... Yeah, I won't even get it. Eh, fuck it, we're talking about this book. Anyway, I, yeah. I have heard stories of, uh, of, like, when men die from heart attacks, they will, like that pretty much their hearts will still force one last erection 
even if they're dying. That's just where the blood goes. <laughs> with some anthropologists believing, wow. like, yeah, nope, that is the that is the reproductive instinct. And even as the body is dying, your brain is still a little bit like, all right, one last chance. Let's see if we can, you know, get get some DNA out into the world. Yeah. <sighs> I had never heard that before. Is uh, that's very interesting. I think I actually read it in relation to the movie. You've seen the movie Clerks? No, actually, I haven't. No? Oh, well, okay. Well, I'll ruin this for you anyway. But, yeah, uh, it's fine. So there's a scene where... Um, so earl- earlier in the movie, somebody asks the main character, Dante, an old man asks if he can use the bathroom. He says, sure. He goes to the bathroom, and we just forget about him. At one point... The main character's girlfriend comes in and uses the bathroom. She comes out looking all dreamy, like, what's going on with you? She says, Dante was waiting for me in the bathroom. It was so dark. We had sex. It was great. Yada, yada, yada. Then Dante walks in from the front door. Long story short, this old man died masturbating on the toilet, still had a heart on. She went in thinking it was her boyfriend and had sex with a dead man. Damn. Yeah. Yikes. (laughs) So that that's what started off Kevin Smith's film career. So good right. for him. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Um, where the fuck was I? Oh, okay. Despite the mayhem, Gately still can't stop noticing how good Joel smells. He suddenly realizes he's heard her voice before, that she's Madame Psychosis. A security guard shows up and says, nobody move. Joel tez- tells Erdity to use his, su- his annoying superpower and go distract the security guy with his awkward, panicking verbiage, which he does. I love that even Erdity has a slot in this world. Because mm-hmm. we saw earlier his interaction with the black man that he didn't want to hug and just how he just can't stop fumbling over himself. But that would be a perfect way to distract a security guard for, you mm-hmm. know... <laughs> I think he's like, I want to know who's in charge here. He's like, well, I don't know. What what type of situation do you think it is to be in charge of? Unless you, of course, you might be in charge. Meanwhile, they're <laughs> moving a gigantic, bleeding, dying man into uh, his home. Mm-hmm. Gately tells Joel he recognizes her voice now. He thinks to himself he deserves credit for not vomiting right before vomiting a little on <laughs> Green and Joel, who both politely ignore it as they carry him inside. Those are my notes for this week. God damn that scene. Right? Is so, if for whatever reason you're listening to this podcast and didn't actually read that chunk and you're just listening for a summary, I could not do it justice. Go back, read it, uh, 601 to 619, because it is enthralling. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's David Foster Wallace, and I read ahead, and that means the follow-up of this enthralling scene is we don't see Gately for at least 150 fucking pages <laughs> after this. Uh, you have good stuff to look forward to with him, if that makes you feel better. Like, it there's does, another scene with him better. that's incredibly good, so that I'm thinking of in particular, and you'll know it when you get to it. Nice. Okay. Well, no, it's just, unfortunately, that is just the thing I've noticed in this book, because... Uh, the same thing happened when we had Pemulus and Hal, and I believe it was Stice, and they're all waiting outside the office for pretty much to uh, kitten plans there too. And they're they're meeting with CT to find out what the fallout of the whole Eschaton thing is going to be. And mm-hmm. I'm, you're actually really curious to get into it as they're talking about what's at stake, yada yada yada. 
And then it, we're 150 pages later and we still haven't gotten the follow-up to that. It just kind of goes away for a while. Yeah. Which, you know, that's, that's how, how it goes with this book. Yeah. So yeah, when you first read that, like that's, it, you said it's one of your, what was your initial reaction to that section? Honestly, like, at, at this point, I think I'd encountered, like, quite a few chapters where I basically was just, like, shitting myself over how much I loved it. Like, but this was, this was one that, that struck me as particularly, I don't know, well executed. I, I don't tend to care about fight scenes and things, like, books or movies. Um, you have to and, and also, just, I don't tend to care about sports. Um, mm. And this book made me care about both multiple times, oh, wow. which is fantastic, you know? Now, ju- just tennis or also the art of punting? Oh, just tennis. I don't okay. know about the... I don't have any <laughs> real memory of, of any beautiful descriptions of the, the punting mm. specifically that, that I remember thinking they, that they I was were, impressed by. They were pretty much all in accordance to how it's just like tennis, so... You weren't yeah. missing anything. Yeah, I figured. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, just um, such a such a beautiful and uncanny and and violent scene, like all all of these things, and and establishing Don as as fundamentally such this this good guy, you know, like despite all everything in his past and and all his sort of foibles and mm-hmm. and flaws just fundamentally a good guy and and to to illustrate that with a scene like this is i don't know so impressive to me mm-hmm. so yeah the, the the scene itself is very impressive uh one of the more filmable scenes in infinite jazz mm-hmm. i'm still I was talking with somebody about this and I think they don't, they didn't quite get what I was getting at. Cause they were just arguing with me on Twitter where I, I had said, I almost, it surprised me that some of James and Candenza's films, it surprised me that fans of the book hadn't attempted to like film a facsimile of those just cause I'd like to see how it would look maybe. Mm-hmm. And this person came back to me like, well, it shouldn't have to be filmed. Like, no, I'm saying that would have helped. Right. But I almost think like a great mega project for this book would be like if just fans around the world, like if they just decided like I'm going to film this scene and that's like that's the only movie version of Infinite Jest ever. Like just mm. divergent styles and different casts entirely. But uh, but yeah, no, just great scene there. Moreover, it sets up a bunch of questions coming forward. What are going to be the repercussions to Gately? Mm-hmm. Uh, especially with that DA that we know absolutely hates him for sticking toothbrushes up his ass right. and <laughs> leaving that. Um, we also see this. We've seen, we can tell there's something with Gately and Joel, but this is obviously going to be a big bonding moment as she, you know, as she watches him handle business and literally probably saves his life mm-hmm. in some regard. Yeah. Yeah, this is this might be the most excited I've been to do the next episode, just so I can read and see where it goes. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I I remember like I was in I think like 19 or 20 when I first read this book, and and the character I related to most was obviously Helen Cadenza, Ivan Karamazov, sad boy uh, thing. But I think I appreciate Gately now. Um, 
on my second reread, which was when I was like 27 um, last year. Uh, so I definitely, I think, appreciate, not that I didn't before, but sort of the, the very quotidian adult struggles that he's sort of going through throughout the entire book. Mm -hmm. I relate to more than I did when I was a college student who didn't know mm -hmm. things. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I could see that reading it as a college student where just kind of like, oh, yeah, that's a, that that's some deep stuff to think about. That, that would be an interesting thing to think about. And then getting a few years older and be like, oh, no, this is stuff you have to think about at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Just, yeah. Just the world's tendency to destroy us. And if we have any culpability or control over that. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think that's this week's episode. Thank you very much for joining me again. Yeah, thank you for having me again. I loved this scene, so I was very excited to come back for it. It, it was very well worth it. I don't think I would have enjoyed this quite as much had I not had somebody who I knew. I, I've had people request certain chunks of the book, and aside from uh, Cousin Frank, I didn't really give it to anybody just because it's been hard to schedule, but I'm glad I got somebody who very specifically wanted yes. to talk about <laughs> this chunk, so thank you for that. Awesome. So. Again, we can find you everywhere at R.E. Parish. That is with two R's, P-A-R-R-I-S-H. Um, I'm going to have to find another Infinite Jest comic you did. I know the one about the um, – I, I used it as the thumbnail for the last one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've like quite a few of them that I've seen, but I, I think still that's the only Infinite Jest one I've picked out of your comics. Uh, yeah, I have a David Foster Wallace one, at least one of those, so I can send that to you to use. It's about awesome. him and Brad Easton Ellis's uh, famous Ooh. slap fight, <laughs> decades-long slap fight. Nice. So. All right, I'll check that out. So um, go check that stuff out, and I'll end this like I end every episode. I'm going to stop recording, but you and I can still talk for a minute. Cool. Thanks, Robin. Sounds good. Thanks. <laughs>